Welcome to worship, and it's great to see that sunshine coming through the back window there, isn't it? We would be at a loss without all that beautiful sun coming through there, so I'm so thankful to see that. I am uh, Pastor Marcus, as mentioned, glad to be here with you, uh, thrilled to unpack this scripture. If it's still there behind me, it is. Woe before you go. And I want you to know that if you have a guest speaker and they voluntarily choose a woe passage, you probably have to ask yourself, what in the world's going on with that fella? Why would he show up one and done, as we call it, one and done, and drop us a bunch of woes on us and head out of Dodge back to the, you know, the main part of our county? Well, I believe I stand corrected, Pastor Ben. We are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And as a result of that, in, in Pastor Theo and Randy's absence, I was blessed with the woe passage. It's just a beautiful one, isn't it? It's, such, it's never going to end up on the Jewish Hallmark card. I'm just telling you right now, never. You're going to see these four verses show up there. It's not the warm and fuzzy, uh, but it is, the, it is the Luke. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to know a little bit about, and I promise not to hit you with all these books, I'm just going to stack them there for a minute. Luke is the, the, the third gospel in the installment of the gospels in the New Testament. Luke was a physician. He was hyper-detailed in his phraseology. He never missed a detail. He followed Paul around, who wrote a good portion of all the New Testament. And he was his compatriot, and he compiled so much of the writings. And we're in the gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 10, as you know from what was once behind me, maybe it still is, What's going on? These are the red letter words of Jesus. And I'm curious because I love the text of scripture. In your Luke chapter 10, how many of you actually have red letters there? Would you raise your hand? You do. Good. I'm glad for the red letter words in the Bible. They are the very words of Jesus Christ. I'm noticing some modern texts take out the red letter words, and I don't think we need to take the words of Jesus and unhighlight them in any format whatsoever. So these are the words of Jesus. The author is Luke. He's a physician. Luke is also the very first historian in the New Testament church is Luke. He wrote the fourth book in the Bible. You might say, well, I thought he wrote the third and the fifth. Chronologically, Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and they belong next to each other chronologically. John wrote the gospel 50 years after the events. So Acts comes way prior to John. But when they put the canon of scripture together, known as the sacred Bible that we have here, they chose to do that to keep the gospels in chronological order so people would better understand the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Luke is super impactful. We're going to unpack the woe before you go out to lunch or wherever you're headed on this glorious day, we're going to unpack the woe before you go. Now, my sub-theme today is reflections on spiritual leadership development. The woe before you go, I have no control over. That's Jesus. He's talking to the 72 disciples. If you missed Sunday school, you might be asking, I thought he only had 12. <laughs> okay? Jesus did have 11 and a half disciples for most of his ministry, and that was dry humor. You don't have to laugh. He had, a, he had an accountant with a debit card. You call him whatever you want to call him. I'm not going to highlight Judas today. But he had 11 and a half disciples for most of his earthly ministry. And you say, well, where did the 72 well-trained, articulate, commissioned, appointed missionaries show up 
to go into the Galilee, 90 miles north of Jerusalem, into the Decapolis, Deca being 10, the 10 major cities around the Galilee, where did they come from? Jesus said he had other sheep that people didn't know anything about, if you read the Gospel of John. He had spent so much time training disciples. I don't think the sermon is necessarily meant to disciple. Also, I don't think it's meant to insult. (laughs) The sermon on Sunday morning is not necessarily there to train or disciple. It's there to exhort, to open the word of God, to lead, lead you to want to know more later. We don't have enough time in the limited time on Sunday morning. But I hope you'll go back and read the woe portion. But let's read it together. If you're in Luke chapter 10. We're going to go, uh, and Pastor Theo is listening, and I promise to stay within the confines of my assigned text. I so want to go over. Please don't do this. Don't do this in the sanctuary. I could get in trouble. Do not overread and go into, I know you're going to do it as soon as I say it. Do not read verse 17 while you're in the sanctuary. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but don't do it. It is so I don't even know, Pastor Ben, do you know who has next week's installment? Is it Pastor Theo? Wow, he's blessed. I'm not saying I'm not. (laughs) I get the woe and he gets the... But verse 17 is significant in this whole series. But I'm going to remain with what we have today. Now I want to talk to you about literature for a second. I love literature. I love to read. It's never going to show. But I love to read. I'm a bit bookish. And that's okay. I love to learn and grow because I think Christianity is a learning experience. We have emotions. We're supposed to have emotions. They're valid. God gave them to us for a reason. But we're not supposed to live our faith based on those and those alone. We are supposed to learn in the faith. We're not supposed to be today where God will have us next year. We are to grow and continue to learn about what God is calling us to. This is known, this section, these four verses, are an interlude. If you were to take these out of Luke chapter 10, I don't even think you would better understand Luke chapter 10. An interlude is when the author takes a break from the narrative to insert in a story information that in some way connects the two bodies. If you like music, Gershwin, an American in Paris, you'll find several interludes in there Without the pause, the music doesn't really add up. So this is an interlude, a very woeful (laughs) interlude. Dry humor, but let's just work our way through if we can. Beginning with verse 13. And you know the first word, don't you? Let's just all say it together on the count of three. One, two, three, whoa. I've never been in a church that said whoa like that. Just (laughs) ever. Uh, We just did it. Thank you so much. We'll read it. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Verse 15 of this very warm passage. And you, Capernaum. I'm going to pause here. Just know something. I'm going to have to tell you something. I've been to Capernaum six times. I've floated around the Sea of Tiberias, known as the Sea of Galilee. It's just a lake. 
I floated around there while teaching classes in the Galilee region. It is a lake. It has a tide. It's unusual. But in your New Testament, it's called the Sea of Galilee. It is at 10 o'clock on the dial. Capernaum is at 10 o'clock on the dial. Then you get to Chorazin. It's at 11 o'clock on the dial. You get to Bethesda where the miracle of the loaves and the fish, it's at 1 o'clock on the dial, if you even have a dial in your life. <laughs> Maybe so digital, you don't. Ask somebody with a dial if you don't have a dial in your life. That's where these are in the Decapolis. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? Rhetorical question. No, you will go down to the depths. Jewish phraseology, Sheol, which is not hell, as you would know it in your scripture, it's down to Sheol. Now, all these double entendres in verse 16, and we're going to get to our application. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, isn't that clear? It's not initially. You have to read it again to get much clarity, but it is. Let's talk about the woe. I really don't know if we live in a culture that has a lot of woe in it anymore. I mean, if you passed anyone by and they said, woe, please pause on the fifth cup of coffee. No, <laughs> don't do that. The woe doesn't exist in our lexicon anymore, in our thesaurus or our dictionary. It's just not a part of our culture. So I did some digging. Woe in this context. I found a really good application by Dr. John MacArthur, uh, who in his Bible commentary, uh, chapter 35, if you want to know a little more on the New Testament commentary, here's what John MacArthur says about woes. But Jesus used woe against scribes and Pharisees and towns, not as an exclamation, but as a declaration not as an exclamation, but a declaration, a divine pronouncement of judgment from God. It was not God's desire that they be condemned, but rather they repent and come to salvation. So when Jesus is sending out the 72, he is telling them, and how would you like to have been the two going to Capernaum? <laughs> how would you like to have been the two, four, six going to Chorazin? Isn't it great to show up someplace where you know things just didn't go over anyway in the beginning and Jesus was the original messenger and you're the follow-through and Jesus was rejected? Or now you're on your way to Bethesda, they've just seen 20,000 people fed off a boy's lunch and thought, hmm, whatever. And you're going there to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the miracle of repentance, the miracle of salvation, and these people are so cynical but Jesus said, you're going to go anyway. And here's why. You're going to tell them, whoa, the trail that you're on spiritually leads to a zip code that you don't want to be in. And if you're willing to repent and you're willing to change trails, you'll get to a beautiful place in your life. If you're willing to leave the woeful trail that you're now walking, good things are ahead for you. Jesus masterfully uses the woe, and I do not. Now, I want to talk about the five towns in this text. There are five towns in these three initial, 
if I can get my numbers right. One, two, three. I got it. One, two, three. There are five towns. I want to get the Gentile towns out of the way, if you'll let me. Uh, the Gentile towns of Tyre and Sidon. They're Gentile. They're Phoenician. They have a bitter millennial war going on with Chorazin, Bethesda, and Capernaum. I don't know if you've been to the Middle East or not. I don't know if you traveled that far. I wrote a text on the Bible called Foundations in Faith, the Jewish roots of Christianity, and would travel with my students to Israel and Egypt and Jordan uh, to go along and see these sites. And I would tell my students before we land, I want you to know, the space bubble in America is considered three to five feet. You know, Pastor Ben and I shook hands. It was like, good. It's good. But in the Middle East, it's about that far. It's about that far. When you're talking in the shop and you want one of those beautiful handmade type of mosaics, when you're dealing with them, you need a spit guard. <laughs> They're in your face. To use modern terminology, grill. The American space bubble is much different. But in the Middle East, it is close quarters. It's just how they see the world. So when you voluntarily bring up Tyre and Sidon, Gentile Phoenician cities that were doomed by the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel, and you put them with the blessed Jewish cities of Galilee, you started a verbal war just like that. You have any phrases in your life? As soon as you mention him, you know it's going to set the family reunion off. You just know what I mean? I'll tell you what mine is. The travel Scrabble set. <laughs> it's an Olympic sport in the Dennis family. Scrabble. I even have the new version on wheels. You don't need to move or anything. It's just read, read, read like a lazy Susan, right? And next with the travel Scrabble is the official, current, modern, up-to-date, hate-to-lose Marcus dictionary. <laughs> If you blow it, you lost a turn, right? And then next, this is the really fighting material here, the journal of all the games we've ever played. <laughs> and my mom, who beat me on the very last move with a seven-tile word, she's like, what was our last score? You know our last score, Mom. Well, would you tell me? No, I'm not going to tell you that you beat me on a seven-tile word overlapping one of my tiles and trumped me by three digits. Just read it for mom. I love you. No. But there are things in our life we know if we introduce them into a conversation, they are what we would know as a more, right? I can beat up on my little brother, but you cannot beat up on my little brother. Jesus Christ knew in telling the 72... I'm commingling these five towns together, and here's the reason why. I want to get the Gentile towns out of the way first here. Jesus portrayed the Gentile doomed towns of Isaiah and Ezekiel as more receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ than the ones that had just seen him days and weeks prior. Don't label anybody lost. Only God can do that. Don't label anybody doomed in past redemption. Only God can do that. Don't say they're lost as a corn cob. That's what we say in Indiana. They're lost as a corn cob when you don't know that. God could be working on their heart right now in the midst of anything that's going on. God can use anything 
So he tells the 72, I know you don't think much about Tyre and Sidon. They're Phoenician. They're our enemies. They're, they're not even Jewish. They're Gentile. And they were doomed by the mega prophets in the Old Testament. But I want you to know, as Jesus, the, the Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world, today, as I'm telling you this, you 72, they're more receptive to the gospel than these towns I'm about to send you. Now let's get to the towns that Jesus talked about. They are on the Sea of Tiberias, known as the, the, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Tiberias, rather. We've mentioned some of them, Chorazin. We know a little bit about Chorazin. The temple of Chorazin is still standing. The majority of the temple is there. Bethesda, as I said, is one on the dial around there. They've just seen the epic miracle of the feeding of the masses by the disciples. And if they didn't know, they had 12 baskets to take home and shake in people's faces. One boy's lunch can feed 19,000 plus people and everybody gets take home, right? Who doesn't love take home? The disciples got take home. And, and still they said, not worried about it, not interested. There got to be something to that gimmick of those fish that come out of the Sea of Galilee and somebody's bakery had to be just pumping out, you know, the things. No. Cynical people. But Jesus talked about the pronouncement of the doom on the, on the people. That's verse 14 where he literally goes into depths here about what's going to happen. And the pronouncement of the doom on them if they don't turn their life around. And I lost my marker. Lord willing, I'll be able to find Luke, right? We'll just see here. And Luke chapter 10, as I want to reread that to you for emphasis. This is where... He talks about the, the pronouncement of doom. And that is, but it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. We're now talking about the judgment. We, we've moved from woe to judgment. Why? This is the interlude of Jesus. We don't get to sit on the editing committee of the Bible. We just get to live by it. We have no choice but to realize this was an essential element in the gospel. Now to Capernaum. Been there six times. If you don't know this, this is Jesus Christ headquarters. Oh, <laughs> this is Jesus Christ headquarters. This is where he made home. This is where he wrote his best life stories. This is where he trained all of his disciples. He went into the bakeries. He went into the places, the carpentry shops, the streets. They didn't buy his message. Reminds me of a classic I'm reading, You Can't Go Home Again, written in 1939. By Thomas Wolfe, you can't go home again. Jesus went back to the headquarters and he was sending more people to the headquarters. Why? Grace, the grace, the almighty grace of God through Jesus Christ, through his disciples, through the church of Jesus Christ, can melt down even the people who are overly familiar with the gospel and think they got the whole thing down pat. No, we don't. We do not have the gospel down pat. Now to this message, to the message... Now, if you want to read back, you can. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 are just gloriously impactful. He tells them to go. He tells them where to go. He tells them what to take, what not to take. He tells them they're going in twos like they went into Noah's Ark. Something to do with pairs in the Bible, right? You're going in pairs. And you're going to go here. You're going to stay here. When you enter a house, you're going to say, Shalom. Please don't use the American word peace right there. Please don't do it. If there's one word out of Luke chapter 10, you can't even go to Israel and 
have any interaction with anybody without shalom. That's just how it happens in the marketplace, in business, in intellectual properties, in writing, in transactions, in bartering. Shalom is how it comes out. It's a deep-seated principle in Jewish culture. It's not a peace. It's in you. It's all about your house. You have so much peace that you can pass the peace. I don't think we say that in church anymore. Remember that? I've been in church so long now. I love the church. Well, we used to pass the peace to people because we had so much. So let's talk about the message. There's a human agent, yet there is a divine source. What if God sends me to one of these woeful zip codes, woeful places in my life as a disciple? They'll never turn around. They'll Remember the nevers, right? What if Jesus says, that's exactly where you're going to go? Remember, you're the human agent to a divine message of Jesus Christ. The message can go further. Now, verse 16, as we think about getting to an application of our text here. He who listens to you listens to me. Are we a listening culture? You don't have to answer that out loud. I did have people in congregations, just so you know I've served. They chose to answer every rhetorical question out loud that I asked. Thank you for not doing that. <laughs> it made me a little edgy at rhetorical questions. <laughs> it took me five to seven years to stop asking them. Are we a listening culture even? Jesus said to them, this is the interlude and then the launch. This is prior to their return and before they left. These four verses, they are prior to their return and before they left. That's why I won't touch verse 17. <laughs> he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. How's rejection? Don't you just love rejection? It's the breakfast of champions. Just don't have two helpings. It's the breakfast of champions. Without a little rejection, do we even get anywhere in this life that we're in? But he's telling the disciples, you're going to get rejected. That's why I say. And then finally, there's a larger rejection here, 2.0, if you will, where he says, but he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Professional, but not absorbed and so personal in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be professional in how we transmit the gospel of Jesus Christ, but not so personable. If they don't like us, we're overly hurt by that. I've been kicked off the Dome of the Rock every time I've taken students to Israel by the people that oversee the Dome of the Rock that have prayer five times a day without going into details. Just having my yarmulke stick out of my pocket has so many phrases said to me that I couldn't say them in church. Wouldn't say them in church, only in a class. With guards around me. Which is illegal according to the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. But still, it gets into a clamorous fight every time I've been to the Dome of the Rock. It gets down to negotiation. Where? So you don't like me? No, we don't like you. I can give you the first couple words, you pig, and I can't give you the rest. But here's the deal I'd like to make with you, if it's possible. Will you let my adult students, there are no minors, 
go to the Dome of the Rock to see the rock of Abraham where he would have sacrificed his son. If I voluntarily leave the Dome of the Rock, would you let my students go to the Dome of the Rock to see the historical part of our biblical heritage, even though currently you oversee this as the IDF starts to make a scene? And they do. When the Israeli Defense Force shows up, they don't apologize. So it's clamorous in the Dome. I'm that many, and oh, I've never made it. <laughs> Get kicked off. But you know, on the bus, I'm so thrilled that all my students have always had a chance to go to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem to see one of the holy sites of faith and life. And I'm thrilled. Do I want to get kicked off? No. Do I want to be called a pejorative? No. Why not, though? If they get to go, I know what's under it. <laughs> I went back at night with the IDF anyway. Score. <laughs> Nobody had a chance to kick me off when I went back with the Israeli Defense Force. It's their property. It's their land. I didn't want to make a scene. So when we are professional but not so absorbed that when they don't listen to us, there's a dual reality here, and then I want to make some applications. The reception and the rejection Jesus is talking about is a part of the mission of the high calling of Jesus Christ. It's a part of it. The reception and the rejection will come with the gospel. Don't stop preaching the gospel because of rejection or reception. They're both imposters. Mm. That's Christianity 3.0 when we just maybe left the text. Don't be overly concerned about over-reception or rejection. Now, before you go, reflections on spiritual development and leadership. I want to make some applications here prior to our text and then wrap up here if I can. Why were they so successful? Because Jesus commissioned them. Jesus commissioned the 72. I can't tell you what's in verse 17 because we're not reading it. We're not even going to talk about it. But I just want you to know the percentage of the people that came back if you choose to read that this week. <sighs> and look what they came back with. They came back with what I still hold to believe, the number one leading indicator if you're leading people, if you're involved in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they came back, front-loaded their sentence with this quality. It's huge what they came back with. Read it later. So in the 10th chapter in verse 1, Jesus appointed and commissioned them into pairs. What did he teach them about leadership there in pairs? What did he teach them? Why didn't he send Luke off to write the best history possibly of Capernaum's demise? We'd still be reading it today. He sent them in pairs because Jesus was teaching them something we should be teaching people today. Interdependence is more important to the Christian message than independence. Mm. What about me and my thoughts and my ideas? You can have them, they're valid. What about my opinion? You can have those too, and they're valid. But interdependence, how we work together, how we relate together, how we function as the body of Jesus Christ is more important than how we function independent, isolated, and alone from other people for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I spent my life in the courts. It's a high calling, almost 30 years. I'm in the courts often. I believe in Jesus Christ has a calling for the court system like the Church of Jesus Christ. I, I work regularly there, serve the Hancock County Public Defender Board as the secretary by the appointment of the three justices. 
I believe there's a calling to the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere we're willing to go. And if you don't believe in Christian attorneys, let's have coffee later. It's a, it's a calling. It's a calling. He commissioned them. He taught them how to work as interdependent, not independent. Are you subconsciously, inadvertently, teaching the people in your following how to be independent or interdependent? Oh, it's a micro shift. It is a micro shift that has a macro shift impact on the church of Jesus Christ. I remember in one of my credentialings at the University of Washington, having bested my class, but not by much, I got a chance to speak. Federal judge at the Gates Center asked when this type of mindset came into my life. When did I decide that I would help people work out their conclusions rather than just fight? How did this happen in my life? It was an interview. And I find it humorous, so I don't have any jokes. I just poke fun at myself. I said to the retired federal judge, it's simple. Uh, when did I want to work interdependently instead of independently to help people? Is when I went to my father with the problem, the smallest of four boys, right? And told my father and mother that my siblings were probably pounding me. You know, that's what we did. Born in 68, get the deal. Four boys within 37 months, just live with it, right? My dad looked at me. I don't know how old I was. My mother and said, you have an hour to find a solution or you're all in trouble. What? That's, un that's not justice? <laughs> don't tell my parents that. One's in heaven. <laughs> it wasn't about justice. <laughs> it wasn't about anything. It was about that. Go find a solution. And you, since you brought the problem to me, you're the one that will come back in an hour. If you don't come back in an hour with the solution, you're all in trouble. Thank you very much. We love you. Bye-bye. So my enemy became my friend. <laughs> the person that probably just marred part of my life became the part of my solution. And my whole life, I believe I'm still looking for solutions because of that profound micro-shift in my life. Go find a solution or you're all in trouble. What if we said that in the church? I'm after a solution, not the problem. How can I help you? Next application of before you go reflections on spiritual leadership might be this. They knew they would face hardship. Why do we go play people's lives in ministry, right? Why not stainless steel? Stainless steel is good enough. Don't go play the early part of people's ministry calling or what they're doing, falsely stating it's going to be wonderful in their lives. After all, look at the disciples. They left without food, funds, or extra clothing. Oh, that's great. And they're not allowed to stay in Airbnbs. <laughs> There's no social media and no takeout. And no moped coming with Grubhub. Because the falafel they put in front of me is horrible. Nope. You will have hardship. Why don't we let people know that? You're in a marathon, not a 5K. Why not? It's okay. We're all in the marathon together. We all need each other. Great book by my friend, Dr. Reuben Welch. We really do need each other. So popular, Zondervan brought it back out on print. And verses 5 through 7, there was a profound peace about the disciples. Now I bring to you uh, Dr. David Stern's Jewish New Testament. Shalom, right? We said that. I bring to you the Jewish New Testament. It is the best rendition of what we mean by the peace that Jesus wanted the disciples to have. Deep-seated peace. This is verse 5, Jesus to the 72. It applies to our text. It says this. 
Whenever you enter a house, first say, shalom, exclamation. See, I told you. Shalom, exclamation, to the whole household. Ah, shalom to the whole household. If a seeker of shalom is there, your shalom will find its rest with him. If there isn't, it will return to you. Do you have so much peace that you can bring peace to almost anything that you will face? Do you have so much peace that you can share the peace with people? Do you have so much peace if people reject your peace, you still have peace? Just a question. Jesus wanted them to have shalom that was so deep in their life. No matter what they faced, they would have so much peace. Even rejection wouldn't affect their peace. That's deep for us. And then you get down to something that I, verses 8 and 7 and 8, and this is a part of our application. It's a part of the sending. Eat whatever is set before you, and then eating and drinking whatever they give you. Having been through 100 countries in my life, having served as a pastoral ministry, a professor, an author, a teacher, a lecturer, that is not so easy. Eating whatever is set before you is not so easy. Oh no, there are things that move and they're not supposed to move. Whatever is on my plate, why does it still have eyes? Because you're not in America. <laughs> it looks like it's staring at me from one side. I had to cover that thing up there. Is there any device on the table to maim it? Because I'm not sure, it's, I'm not sure what's going on in front of me. <laughs> Here in the United States, we domesticate those. What is it doing in the middle of the table? <laughs> hundred countries, four continents. But my hardest meal of my life, my hardest meal of my life was in the Amazon jungle. A 50-mile hike, 50 kilometers, 31 miles. And the interpreter, if you don't know this side of the pulpit, we call them interrupters. <laughs> that side of the pulpit, we call them interpreters. But my interpreter would tell me where we're going. We're staying in a binab, which is a hut the size of this main sanctuary. It's one room, and they're going to feed us. And he waited. He waited a kilometer or two to say this to me. You can't leave any money when we leave. What do you mean? They will have saved for weeks and weeks to feed us. There'll be a feast. You're going to eat out of a large leaf the size of a medium pizza. There's, you'll insult them if you try to leave any money. You'll insult them if you have to do anything special. It's their honor to feed us. It's their joy. Uh, they will feed us. And I said, hold on. I cannot eat food that took people weeks and weeks and weeks to save up for. Without doing something, he said, there's really nothing we can do. We go or we don't go. We eat what they offer us. It's their sacrifice for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you today at 54, that was the single most difficult meal I've ever worked through, realizing five or six weeks of their life savings went in to feeding me a single meal and my small team. Not opulence, not luxury. I like nice things. It's okay to like nice things. But I'm telling you, that one was brutal on me. It still is today, and I don't think of it that often. Jesus says in the 72, whatever shows up, be thankful. What's that teach? Attitude affects outcome. <laughs> That's right. Jesus is teaching them the leadership principle that your attitude will affect the outcome. Accept it. Why the success? Because they were so 
pardon me, they were so well trained. That's the success as we begin to wind this down here. Why the success, the training, the training, did I say that word? The training, the training that went in to the disciples. What about the emotion? I hope you have emotions. What about the learnedness? Doesn't the Jewish culture say the highest form of worship is study? Yes, they do. But what about the training? Capital T, Jesus trained these disciples so well they knew where to go, what to say, what to eat, when to leave, how to be rejected, how to accept success. He had trained them on the two greatest things as well probably the penultimate here. I'll read just C.S. Lewis. I like C.S. Lewis. At 2000, which has been a few years ago, Time Magazine spent a decade studying Christian literature globally. Their search was to find the author that had the greatest impact on Christendom at the millennial at 2000. By far, on the shelves of ministers, pastors, missionaries, Christian leaders, faith leaders, by far globally at 2000, C.S. Lewis had impacted more people for Christianity than any other author, not even a second place in his life. An atheist, prior to an atheist, an agnostic, aren't they the same? No, Google it. Then he became a devout Christian, wrote Mere Christianity. This is one of my favorite quotes. I'm not padding a paper. It's valid. Now, faith in the sense in which I am here using the word is the art of holding on to things your reason once accepted. Holding on. We train people to hold on. Holding on to things your reason once accepted. In spite of your changing moods, for moods will change whatever View your reason takes. I know that by experience. This is C.S. Lewis. Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable to the body here. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. Love the phrase rebellion of moods. It's going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach, train your moods, air quotes, where they get off, you can never either be a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. You have to train. But just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather. Now the last sentence is epic to the church and the 72. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. Do we train the habit of faith? I don't know. I remember Miss Jackson was my fifth grade Sunday school teacher. I never missed all year because she had a prize for the student that didn't miss. And my mom and dad went on vacation as the pastor of the church with my four siblings, and you know what I did? Ask if I could stay to go to Sunday school. My dad's like, you're special. <laughs> but we knew that already. It's okay. We had games around my house. I would beat him and scrabble later for allowance money, things like that, you know. It's okay. Really, yeah, I, I want to stay. I stayed that whole year. Lawrence Church of the Nazarene. I still have that plaque today. Mrs. Jackson was an incredible Sunday school teacher the training, the training, the training that happens. We have to train the habit of faith. Jesus trained them in direction. They knew where they were going. He trained them on what to say. And lastly, in my application, he even trained them on the two imposters. 
the two imposters, as I raise my fingers here, the two imposters of leadership development. He, he trained them in this. How to deal with rejection and success. They're both imposters. They are. I'm in the presence of some of my friends that have joined me, award-winning in this county, in this region, for what they do. Plaques could stack on their desk for their current awards and recent awards for their service in this county, other counties, and other places. And thank you for my friends that have joined us today, Billy and Dave and otherwise. Epic in what they do and how they approach things. But if you're in my leadership school and I have anything to do with it, there's two imposters. Success and rejection in the gospel of Jesus Christ should both be imposters. For every 1,000 people that can handle rejection, there's one that can handle success. Success will destroy you so much faster than rejection. I hope so many people have all the success they wish for to get it out of the way. So you realize life is about life, not about the left side of the trail, rejection, or the right side of the trail, success. In the light of the kingdom eternally, both of them are imposters and loosely let go of them, as Jesus was telling the 72, and simply preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. A couple applications and we're done. And thank you for being good listeners. These are the words of Jesus. May they be applied to our life. 79 years ago, Reverend Luther, Lasten Luther, and Ruth Dennis, my paternal grandparents, went to Harrison, Ohio, and planted a church. It's thriving today. 12 acres, they have a school, they have a campus church off the campus, they have a thriving ministry of music, they have groups all over the county. It's just exploded. When I was 25, I attended their 50th anniversary with my uh, paternal grandmother, who knew all the history of the church. And when I was 50, if you're following the math, I went to their 75th anniversary, and it was even growing even larger. And if God spares my life, when I turn 75, there'll be 100. And they have had uh, so many pastors since then. Uh, they rented, uh, God rest your soul, Grandmother Ruth, you're in heaven, but I'm going to say it anyway. The only building they could find in Harrison, Ohio, after the end of World War II was a liquor store. Sold sauce six days a week, right? Cigarettes inside. My grandma, the first thing she did was, heaven forbid, and bought a curtain that covered the outside of the window, not just the inside. She told me that at the 50th anniversary. And, and they preached the gospel on the street corner of Harrison, Ohio. He only stayed one week shy of a year. Had 18 pastors. He stayed one week shy of a year and planted a seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here, 79 years later, it's a thriving congregation on 12 acres with three churches, a school, and so many ministries that are doing good. I'm going to borrow from our leadership lessons today. Just be obedient to the call. You're not in charge of time frames. You're not in charge of, I, I overstayed, I understayed. Preach the gospel and get out of Dodge. My grandpa could have stayed longer, could have hampered the church. He stayed a year, and that church is thriving 79 years later. That's the leadership principle we can borrow from today's text today still. Obey the call to preach the gospel wherever you are. And lastly, just a few weeks ago in a session I lead, I try not to lead too many sessions. I get to serve as the president of a recovery movement in four states, 
podcast now with over 50,000 weekly listeners. Five other podcasts have cropped up. Two books, literature, and publication right now. Something that's tripled in the last 36 months in its growth and application for faith and recovery. And it's just exploding in growth due to leadership. I call it lumpership because you're going to take your lumps. You do. Leadership is about lumps. You're going to take your lumps. So if you're in the inner circle and I commingle those terms, I just call it lumpership. When are you going to take your lumps? Because you're going to take them. I'm in a session a month ago, exactly, this week. A brand new person enters the session. By her permission of her family and her, I'll change the name of her name to Susan. Susan comes in. We open up. There's a recovery Bible on the front pew. I'll leave it for Pastor Theo. It's the ones I pass out on the federal grant. For the last few years, I've served the U.S. Department of Justice in the state of Indiana for mental health and substance use disorder. It's been a joy. I get these Bibles on a grant. It's great to pass them out. I even drive a van because some days I'm just a Bible hauler. I'm hauling cases of Bibles around. I've given more Bibles out in the last 36 months than my previous 30 years. So I hand Susan a Bible. One of the pastors there signs it. I signed it, and that's it. And we open up the session with setbacks and successes. I drop one of my handkerchiefs. And one of the first things out of Susan's mouth is that I'm wired for anxiety. Of course, a third of the red flags in my head go off, but I say nothing. I show no surprise, my scrabble face, right? I'm wired for anxiety. Her hands are moving. Her torso is moving. Her head is moving on her neck. She contorts almost when she talks, based on syllable, not word. It's an interesting contortion, but I'm wired for anxiety because my mother left my father with four young daughters and I was an infant, and I stood on the back of the couch, and I looked out the picture window, wanting to know when my mom was coming back, and she never came back. And I developed anxiety. I still have it today. I'm wired for anxiety. Susan said. So we start with setbacks. We move through successes. Or if you're Methodist, joys and concerns. Whatever you call it. Successes and rejections. Whatever the disciples are dealing with. Just whatever you're having, let's, let's be real. And let's keep it here if we can. She shared this openly and I've asked for permission. And so week one, same thing. Two, same thing. Three, I won't follow the sequence. Week seven, exact same thing. Every week, I'm wired for anxiety. I so want to get involved. I so want to get involved here. I so want to say something. But you know, the Holy Spirit says, no. Okay. Don't say anything at all. Week eight. Week eight. Session starts. We have the snack and yak, or crunch and munch. That Christian... Hallmark, you have to eat if you're together. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're having the snack and yak, crunch and munch. Can't say the other one. My dad wouldn't let me say scarf and barf in church. <laughs> but I said it anyway. But, but still, that's what's happening. We end that. We get down to the session. And before we start, Susan says, raise her hand. I want to talk. Okay. I want to start, and I want to say something. Okay. You can I want you to know for 60 years I've been saying the same thing. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me this week while I was reading the Life Recovery Bible. And I want you to know after 60 years of my life, I've come to a conclusion. Six, zero, people. I'm 54. 
60 years I've been telling myself that I'm wired for anxiety, but I'm here to tell you the Holy Spirit told me while reading that Bible with no one in my living room, I am wired by God for his goodness and his glory, and I am not wired for anxiety. I look over at a 39-year Marine on the leadership team before you're biased and think it's a he, it's a she. She can barely hold it together. I look over at a hardened person in recovery. He can't keep it together. I look over at a social worker that's probably seen about everything that you can see, not holding it together very well. And I said, uh, and I wasn't either. And I covered my mouth, which is hard to believe, right? I said, would you like to say more, Susan? She said, I would. The Holy Spirit just kept talking to me and kept talking to me and telling me, I am not wired for anxiety. God wouldn't do that to me. I'm wired for God and his goodness, and I have anxiety, and he's helping me with my anxiety. Here's a hard leadership principle, but I'm going to leave it with you. Let go and let God. It's exactly the way I want to say it. That's exactly how I want to end this. Let go and let God deal with it. We are so close. We reconfigure. We rethink. We redo. We readdress. We throw the old away. Bring in the new. We work on people like their projects. Is God's word and the Holy Spirit enough to turn someone around? Somebody say, man, it happened. Do you realize how hard it would be to turn around a self-programmed message after six decades? You have a clue. Get a 10-year therapy card, and that's just a start. If it weren't for the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And the disciples were short-term missionaries. Thank you, Dave, for reminding me of that. They weren't going to be there that long. Preach the message. Get it out there with clarity. Stay where I send you. Take peace. Eat whatever's in front of you. Preach the gospel. And remember, I'm coming in after you. So once you preach the gospel, you let that seed go and let God deal with the rest. Woe before you go. Reflections on spiritual leadership in your life. May God bless you as you read, verse 17, (laughs) as you live, verse 13, 14, 15, and 16, And as you practice out among this wonderful church at Brown's Chapel Wesleyan, the full gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be richly blessed. Thank you, Pastor Ben.